immortal yet paraphrased words of Albus Dumbledore. Hope can be found even in the darkest of times if one only remembers to turn on the light. Hello and welcome to episode 14 of Turn On The Light. I am your host Louise Cordry and I hope you are all doing well. The sun is shining or is here in the UK anyway. Um, I hope it is where you are too. Um, so as usual at the top of the episode here I will just tell a lovely good news story from the natural world, from the conservation world um, from the past couple of weeks and then we'll get stuck into the species in the spotlight for this episode. Um, the past few episodes I've had a few good news stories which is obviously awesome um, but this time I've decided to just narrow it down to just the, the one really cool good news story <laughs> so to not overwhelm you all with happiness and wonder. Um, so today um, I'm going to talk about red kites in England and that they are thriving 30 years after their reintroduction, which is just amazing. Um, so it's been three decades since 13 red kites were flown in by jet from Spain, and now there are nearly 2,000 breeding pairs of red kites across the country. How amazing is that? Um, and this amazing good news also can pave the way for conservationists to try out some other um, successful reintroduction projects, or hopefully will be successful reintroduction projects um, in England, in the UK. Um, so last year, Natural England actually issued licences to allow five white-tailed eagles to be placed on the Isle of Wight as part of a long-term project to bring beating pairs back to that area of England following successful reintroduction to Scotland, um, which I think I have I have spoken about briefly in previous podcast episodes. Um, so the success of the red kites over the past 30 years gives, you know, enormous high, high hopes um, for the eagles as well. Um, and of course, there I've also talked previously about um, white storks um, having a really good time in England too. Um, so yeah, I mean, these successful reintroductions are good news, not only for the species that it concerns, um, but it can mean amazing things for other species not only birds but mammals and invertebrates to to try and put some of that living fabric back into our island um, that's been depleted over many years through various different factors um so yeah that is your good news story for episode 14 of turn on the light and that is that red kites are thriving in england 30 years after their reintroduction hey Okay, so that's a short, sweet little intro for you there. Now I'll move on to talk about our species in the spotlight, which is a, in a nutshell, for those who haven't listened before, it's a conservation success story from absolutely anywhere in the world of a species that has bounded back from the brink of extinction. And this time it's a fuzzy, furry, cute as a heck little critter, but you probably wouldn't want to give them any chin scratches because they probably wouldn't enjoy that um it is the elusive eponymous charismatic wonderful little creature that is the iberian lynx so today we step into the world of the iberian lynx latin name lynx podinus named the world's most endangered cat which is a dubious title to hold. Um, but these elusive, short-tailed, bushy-bearded wildcats are much smaller than their Eurasian lynx relatives, weighing about half their size, coming in at a maximum of about 15 kilograms. Um, so the females can weigh from nine, um, and then the, the bigger males up to 15, so across that kind of range there. Uh, these guys are easily recognisable. They have a heavily spotted coat and, of course, they sport their characteristic neck ruff um, beard. They look like they have a, a cool little beard going on and tufted ears, um, which all lynx have. The bulk of their diet is made up from the humble European rabbit, but they'll also supplement that with um, partridges, rodents and, to a lesser degree, wild ungulates. They have been known to hunt deer and such as well, um, but the majority of their diet is that little bunny wabbit. So this species of wildcat is endemic to the Iberian Peninsula in southwestern Europe, hence the name. And they used to be widespread all across that 
area. So right from southern southern France throughout central and southern Spain and even into northern Portugal. So quite widespread across that area of Europe there. With numbers at the turn of the century over 100,000. So, you know, these guys were doing well, they had a big range, they were thriving. But now, today, the Iberian lynx is restricted to very limited areas in southern Spain, with breeding only confirmed in Sierra Morena and Doñana coastal plains. So this decline in range and decline in population earned that dubious title of rarest cat in the world. Um, And this was due to a mixture of factors. These factors included a decreasing food base, uh, car hits, habitat degradation and loss, and of course, hunting. That old favourite of factors that will drive a species to extinction. Now, ironically, the hunting was sort of two-sided, so they were both regarded as an attractive hunting trophy and as vermin on the other side of things. Um, So hunters would hunt them for their valuable fur, um, beautiful, beautiful coats, um, and also for their meat. But at the same time, most landowners perceived them as a threat to their game populations. And so they would, you know, shoot to kill on site. And this meant by the 1980s that hunting alone had brought the population down to under 10,000 individuals. uh, Despite hunting being made illegal in the 1970s, I may add. Um, But we all know, um, historically, and what happens in the world these days, that making something illegal is not a fail-safe against it still happening. Um, So sadly, they are still and they were still victims of guns, traps and snares, um, particularly those set out for other animals, um, which is a whole other conversation itself. And that happens to a lot of different animals that happens to mountain gorillas um, who, you know, if you've listened to episode one of this podcast, you know, I have a great love for. Um, But yeah, snares that are set up to capture other animals um, can have a really detrimental effect on whoever else is living in the same habitat area. Um, so yes, so hunting brought their numbers down quite dramatically there. Um, and then after this had happened and there was only sort of 10,000 individuals left, links were further devastated as construction projects and new highways eroded their territory and made them roadkill, essentially. Um, so, you know, all these roads being built in Spain and all these construction projects going on, perhaps a road or... A highway, something like that, isn't something that a lynx would have come across in the past. They might not know to be wary of it. They might not know how to cross a road. And subsequently, they they get hit and they, they get killed. Um, but this was even further compounded by a massive loss of prey. So I don't know how many people are familiar with these diseases in rabbits, but I've had pet rabbits that sadly, sadly suffered from one of these diseases. Um... So myxomatosis, um, it's a disease in rabbits um, that is usually fatal and it will usually be fatal in wild rabbits. Obviously, they're not going to be treated. Um, So a myxomatosis epidemic swept across Spain, um, followed by a rabbit hemorrhagic disease as well in the 1990s. So myxomatosis and rabbit hemorrhage disease virus, RHDV. And it all but wiped out the rabbit population, um, which, as I said at the top of the episode, is it forms the staple diet of the lynx. Um, that's their main food source. And so their numbers shrank even further. To the point in 2002 that the number of known individual lynx left in the wild was down to just 94 individual animals living in just two isolated pockets of Andalusia. One in Doñana and the other in Andalusia. So that is about an area of about 125 kilometres squared. And of those 94, only about a quarter of them were breeding females. This devastation meant that the Iberian lynx was identified as the world's most endangered cat. And it was looked and it looked all set to become the first species of cat to die out since the saber toothed tiger 10,000 years ago. So if no interventions had happened and if the Iberian lynx had become extinct in the wild, that would have been the first wildcat extinction since prehistoric times. So this all looks pretty bad, right? This all looks like bad news. So what changed for these furry fellas? So faced with the likelihood that the lynx would become extinct, the Spanish government said, ah, ah, no, 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 no. And they launched an emergency campaign to save Europe's largest cat 
and establish a captive breeding program. That would culminate in them eventually being reintroduced into the wild. And this was thanks to joint funding between the EU and Spanish administrations to the tune of a cool 100 million euros. And this allowed four breeding centres to be established within Spain and another in Portugal. Now, this project is part of the LIFE programmes, um, so capital L-I-F-E. So LIFE programmes are the EU's funding instrument for the environment and climate action. Um, and this was created in 1992 to provide funding to such initiatives as this. Um, and so to bring the links back, this was called the LIFE Plus Ibelins programme, comprising of more than 20 organisations, um, including zoos and NGOs, charities, people like WWF working to bring these links back from the brink um so the eu are awesome yay we should probably still be in it anyway <laughs> the this recovery initiative was pillared by the breeding program um just to briefly touched on there and by habitat safeguards um so as stated just a little bit earlier the breeding program was initially an emergency strategy and it was surrounded by uncertainty when it first began um, and according to Miguel Simon, the recently retired director of the Lynx Life project, said that scientists had little knowledge of lynx biology. Would the animal be capable of adapting and breeding in captivity? And if so, could a captive bred lynx survive in the wild? All questions that go through every biologist's head when you're attempting these these captive breeding things and we know that some species are a lot more sensitive than others to being in captivity to stress levels and at the time it just wasn't really known how the lynx would respond and if it if it could actually be a success but i'm happy to tell you in hindsight biologists had little to fear following the program today i cannot speak i'll start that sentence again following the program's implementation the number of cubs soon actually exceeded the facility's capacity. So more centres had to be open. Nearly 500 lynx were born across five captive breeding locations in Spain and Portugal. I will attempt to pronounce them for you now. I do apologise if I absolutely butcher the pronunciation. So, we've got El Acabuque, La Olevila, Silves, Zaza de Granadilla, and Zoo Botanica de Jerez, which is the Jerez Zoo. And though the captive lynx are divided across those five areas, scientists have always considered them as a single population and have carefully distributed the animals to ensure maximum genetic diversity within the captive population and therefore within captive breeding. So in 2002, the Jerez Zoo, or Zoo Botanica de Jerez, confirmed that it had three females and it was developing that plan for captive breeding. Um, don't know if you recall earlier but that's 2002 was the point where there was only 94 individuals and where the emergency program from the spanish government was decided upon and that it needed to happen and it needed to happen now so the Jerezu, it had three females and one of those females was saliega who was captured in as a kitten in april 2002 and the reason i'm telling you this is because she became the first iberian lynx to breed in captivity giving birth to three healthy kittens on the 22nd of march 2005 fabulous and over the following years the number of births grew and additional breeding centers were opened following on from this first successful captive birth so I mentioned there about biologists being careful to maintain genetic diversity, which, as we know from previous podcast episodes featuring captive breeding, maintaining genetic, genetic diversity is absolutely key for a species' health and their survival ultimately in the wild. So to better protect the lynx, we have to protect it at all costs, um, and that includes at a genetic level. Um, so an even distribution across these five breeding centres gives a greater guarantee that if something potentially were to go wrong in one facility, the impact for the species as a whole is minimised. So, the lynx were progressively released into the wild, with 185 young lynx being released into the wild over the past decade, in fact. Conservationists witnessed higher survival rates than expected in these young lynx being released, close to about 70% during the first year alone, which surpasses the estimates that were made on paper um, at the beginning of this whole process. They thought that maybe the survival rates in the wild would be about 
So 70% is absolutely incredible. Um, as I said at the beginning of the Lynx's story, the wild population had been reduced in 2002 to those two isolated pockets in Doñana National Park and the other in the Sierra Morena Mountains, both in southern Spain. But the release of captive-bred lynx allowed for the creation of six more pockets of lynx. So they're no longer confined to that area of about 125 square miles. And the lynx were able to spread over a territory ten times bigger than that, with established populations in the Spanish regions of Andalusia, Castilla-La Mancha and Extremadura, and across the border, even in southern Portugal. So the success of the breeding program hinged on a simultaneous effort to safeguard the lynx's territory as well as releasing these captive bred individuals. So lynx are a specialist in both prey and habitat, and so this wildcat survival is intimately tied to the future of both Mediterranean scrubland and to the survival of their prey species, the rabbit. As I said, historically, rabbits were highly abundant on the Iberian Peninsula, but the two viral diseases mentioned, myxomatosis and the uh, rabbit hemorrhage viral disease, meant that the rabbits' number, numbers in themselves had dwindled by 90% since the 1950s. Um, and they're crucial to the local ecosystem for many other reasons, um, but also, obviously, in this story, very importantly, they are the main prey source for the lynx. So besides boosting the rabbit numbers, the conservation of the Mediterranean scrubland has been and will continue to be a pivotal part of preserving the lynx. So it's all coming together. So you've got the captive breeding, but when you release those individuals into the wild, you need them to have habitat to live in and you've got to have them prey to hunt. So all of these things came together nicely um, to be improved upon by the Spanish government, by these organisations um, in the Life Iberian Lynx Project. So I have to mention here again, obviously, with any story like this, they are still a conservation-dependent species. Um, and although the Iberian lynx is protected under CITES Appendix 1 and penalties are enforced for those hunting this elusive cat, they still do suffer at human hands. Hunting does still happen and most of their fatalities actually occur these days through road traffic accidents. Um, so Spain are not ignoring that, they're recognising that and they are working on solutions to this um, along with those other organisations that I've mentioned such as WWF um, working to restore Iberian lynx habitat and find solutions to roadways so you know building bridges or tunnels that the lynx can use instead of getting caught up in those busy roads. But working towards this incredible end point here the incredible news is thus. Previously classified as critically endangered by the IUCN Red List, the lynx's status was downgraded to endangered in 2015, and their population trend is incre increasing. And incredibly, scientists say that there is the prospect of improving their status again to vulnerable in as little as six years, if their population trend continues growing at the rate that it currently is. So at a time when extinction threatens so many species worldwide the turnaround of the lynx's fate is unfortunately an exceptional example but that's what i am here to tell you about these exceptional examples to show you that it can happen but more than an isolated case the beloved iberian lynx icon became a symbol of nature conservation across the peninsula and beyond from 94 animals in 2002 a healthy population of 686 Iberian lynx now exist in the wild. That is more than a five-fold increase in the past 18 years. And as a lead scientist on the Iberian lynx recovery program said, the conservation of the Iberian lynx is now seen not only as an ethical principle, but a key element of a healthy Mediterranean ecosystem. Now it's time for your fun facts. Fun fact number one. The word lynx is believed to have been derived from the Greek lukos, meaning light, bright or shine. And that refers to the reflective layer of the lynx's eyes, a structure known as the taptum lucidium. Fun fact number two. A lynx's keen vision earns this cat legendary status in such myths of the Greek people, Norse and North American myths. The lynx sees what others can't and its role is revealing hidden truths. Ooh. 
Fun fact number three. No one is actually definitively sure what the function of a lynx's ear tufts are, but some scientists believe they act like whiskers, allowing for the detection of movements in the surrounding environment. Others believe that the tufts enhance a lynx's hearing. Hmm, mysterious. Fun fact number four. A bobcat is actually a species of lynx. <laughs> Moving on to our interview portion of the show. Today, please join me in welcoming AJ Muheim to Turn On The Light. He originally undertook a Bachelor of Science in Psychology, but since went on to find a love for the natural world and the animals that inhabit it. He honed his knowledge and skills with animals, including working at the Smithsonian's National Zoological Park, whose research and captive breeding contribute to conservation all over the world. He now works as an animal caretaker at the Wildcat Sanctuary in Sandstone, Minnesota. The Wildcat Sanctuary is a non-profit rescue sanctuary, providing a naturalistic environment to wildcats in need, such as those rescued from the exotic wildlife trade, and inspires change to end the wildlife crisis. Combining natural and spacious habitats with a life free of exhibition, the Wildcat Sanctuary allows all residents to live wild at heart, whilst educating people on the wildlife trade with several hard-hitting campaigns, such as Say No to Cub Petting. Whilst these wildcats continue to be exploited, organisations like this are crucial to revealing why the wildlife trade is incredibly damaging and vital to providing these big cats with a comfortable life where they cannot be released back to the world. Let's dive in and talk to AJ about all things wild and feline. Okay, so hello AJ, welcome to Turn On The Light podcast. Um, How are you, first and foremost? I'm good. Thanks for having me. It's good to good to see you again. Um, and I'm excited to be here. Awesome. Awesome. Cool. Um, so as I just touched on there in the intro, you currently work as an animal caretaker for the Wildcat Sanctuary in Minnesota. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the organization, their mission, their message? Yes. So the Wildcat Sanctuary here is uh, it's a forever home to um, wildcats. Um, most of whom have been rescued from the exotic animal trade uh, in the United States um, and in Canada. Um, so a lot of the popularity nowadays has um, come from the, the Netflix show Tiger King. So I've been getting a lot of questions and, and inquiries about um, you know kind of what we do here, um, and we are um, we're kind of here as the as the the safety net for all these cats that have. have Kind of spent their life in captivity um so there's there's this is kind of a background there's more um tigers in captivity in the united states than in the wild in the world um and so that just tells you a little something about what's going on um kind of behind the scenes of everything um and we basically um we we save these animals from whatever their situation is and give them a give them a forever home where they can live out their days in peace, um, away from the public, um, and and with you know plenty of room, uh, toys, enrichment, things like that, um, and give them the best possible care that we can. Um, so we're we're one of the one of my favorite things is we're not open to the public, so we're a true sanctuary. Um, so we are we are here for the cats. Um, we don't we don't buy, we don't breed, we don't sell any of the animals. Um, and you don't have to deal with the public. So. Yeah, so, it's, uh, so, so they're here to live out their days uh, in peace and quiet, um, and, and we're here to help make that happen. Awesome. Excuse me. <clears throat> so you touched a little bit there on Joe Exotic, um, which may be sort of like the first touch point that comes up in your regular person's life talking about big cats at the moment. Um, so I wanted to jump on that and ask you to tell us a little bit about why the show was not positive in terms of big gap conservation and the issues that it raised. Um, so it, the show itself kind of skirted over a lot of issues um, and it kind of glorified the kind of the quote-unquote bad guys um, of this world. Um, so one thing it kind of skirted over was um, how Joe Exotic was um, basically p- taking newborn cubs um, from the mothers and um, just literally taking them away and uh, raising himself to sell. Um, so the 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 what am I trying to say? This 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 breeding, the the speed breeding, and um, 
and selling that. That's how he makes, that's how he made, rather, most of his money. Um, you take these cubs, you sell them for thousands of dollars, and people buy them because they think they're cute, and they think it's, you know, it would be cool to have a tiger. Um, and then all of a sudden, that little, you know, the 15-pound cute fur ball turns into a 400-pound apex predator, mm. and you can no longer take care of it um, properly. And for all the um, British listeners, that's about 200 kilograms. Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, and, and so people, you know, they buy them early on, um, and then it just gets out of control. Um, and so here at the Sanctuary, we do have tigers, um, where that's been the case, coming from, um, from speed breeders and cub petting facilities as well, mm-hmm. um, where, you know, it's... You know, the roadside kind of come take your picture with a tiger um, where they're, you know, either the animals are either heavily sedated or they're chained down, something like that, just for photo ops. Um, so it's it's basically, I think they, they skirted over how, in the show, how much Joe Exotic and his friends kind of exploited the animals. Mm-hmm. Um, they use the animals for their benefit mm-hmm. um, rather than, you know, taking care of the animals because they truly cared for them and they're looking out for their best interests. Um, so it skirted over a lot of issues like that. Um, and it kind of glorified um, how um, he was kind of going about his business. Um, and so that's why one of the things I like about where I work is we, you know, we don't exploit. Um, we're totally privately funded. Um, you know, we don't have, we don't have money coming in from, from daily admission from the public. So we're all, privately funded on uh, mostly through Facebook and social media mm-hmm. um, and everything that we do make goes right back to the animals um, so but again I'm, I'm pretty biased yeah. I work here but I, I do think we have a pretty good operation that I'm mm-hmm. yeah definitely and um, yeah sort of one of the um, things that I was really disappointed in Netflix a little bit actually with Tiger King I could only watch the first episode I got too angry and switched it off (laughs) otherwise I would have just been yelling at the TV the whole time but um I felt like there was an opportunity for them to sort of raise a little bit more awareness and put and it could have been sort of the blackfish for big cats and I I feel like they missed a bit of an opportunity there um so yeah I wasn't a big a big fan um of it but talking about the speed breeding of of mothers presumably that's atrocious for the mother's welfare as well yeah so they um yeah so as soon as the cubs are born they're they're pulled away um and that's you know and as soon as the mothers don't have the cubs anymore they can and their bodies are not trying to produce the milk they're going right back into their estrus so they can feed again uh, or excuse me breed again <laughs> um they always want to feed um and so and, and, and that's you know that's a big issue and then those cubs are used um i was gonna say the reason that they do speed breed like that it's not just the cell but with the cub petting and the photo ops um in the united states there are very limited laws in terms of what you can and can't do uh, or really cannot do um and so one of the laws is you can only use um tigers for um photo ops and cub petting but between the ages of like, I think it's two months and four months. And then after that, you're not allowed to. The only issue is um, there's no regulatory body that's going out enforcing this. Mm-hmm. There's no one going around saying that cub is five months old. You can't use them in this capacity anymore. Um, but eventually they do, you know, grow to a size where they cannot be used for the, 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 the pictures and the photo mm-hmm. ops. Um, so they are at that point either sold or you know, who knows what happens to them. Yeah. Um, and it's just kind of a sad situation. Um, we've got, at our sanctuary, we have three brothers. We call them the Tiger Trio. Um, and they came from a speed breeding facility. Um, and that facility had 100 tigers on 10 acres of land. Um, wow. And we have, at our at our facility, we have about 120 cats on 40 acres. And when I say cats, that's anything from the lions to tigers all the way down to the small domestic hybrids. Mm-hmm. So they've got a lot more space here. Um, and thankfully, the facility they came from um, is closed now. So that's a good thing. Yeah, um, But that's just one example of, of, you know, things that are going around, going mm-hmm. across the United States and the world um, that, that honestly just not a lot of people know about. 
Yeah, and that's the thing, isn't it? Like, when people think about tigers and having photos of tigers, they might think about Thailand or somewhere like that, but people don't really realise that it can happen in their own back garden. I mean, even in the UK, there was, in North London, the other, I think a couple of weeks ago, a savannah cat got loose in North London that some rich person just had because they thought it was a cool pet. Um, and then just got loose and was running around North London and thankfully was okay, but could have faced being being shot and killed by the police. Um, so yeah, I think it's so important for, for awareness to be raised about these things happening. Um, and thanks to you guys, these these big cats um, actually have a chance at a decent rest of their life. Um, so sort of going back to before you worked at the Wildcat Sanctuary, um, way before, your undergraduate degree was more people focused. Um, so I wanted to ask you, what was it that drew you to work with wildlife and for, for animals? Um, well, I've always had an affinity for animals. I mean, uh, as you know, when I met you in Madagascar, I was doing all the, the fish stuff. And I mean, Madagascar is just an extraordinary place in general for wildlife, all the endemic yeah. species that are there. Um, I mean, I don't tell you that tell your viewers uh, <laughs> um, so I've always, I've always been drawn to animals I never knew quite exactly what I wanted to do um, but I knew I, I had a feeling that I wanted to do something in that field um, you know I was a psychology major when I was in, at, at school um, and, at, at, and at that point in time it was kind of like that was the most interesting course load for me <laughs> um, and then uh, kind of when I, when I graduated and did some traveling I kind of you know, I kind of narrowed down my focus into what I wanted to do. Um, and then, you know, I ended up uh, with, a, with a job and volunteering opportunities at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Um, and, uh, you know, got some experience there and then um, kind of took a chance coming out here in Minnesota um, to kind of further my experience. And, you know, now I'm fortunate enough to get paid to do what I do. Yeah, so absolutely. I'm very, I'm very grateful. You spoke there about the National Zoo. Is that the place, am I right in thinking that's the place where you worked a little bit with Shavalsky's horses, which I've spoken about in previous episodes? Yes, that is true. So they, um, so the Smithsonian Institution is what runs the National Zoo in D.C., and they were pretty much the big um, American entity um, that assisted with the reintroduction of uh, the bee horses to um, the Mongolian steppes. Um, and I know you touched on that on a in a previous episode. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, we do have, so they have the, the actual zoo is in Washington, D.C. Um, and then there is an off-site um, facility um, in Northern Virginia, which is about, it's about an hour's drive away from, away from D.C., um, kind of out in the middle of nowhere where they've got a lot more space. Um, and they do have, um, they do have captive herd there um, that they, that they, um, you know, try to, at least with the captive breeding, the trying to, to, with the genetic variation, trying to keep them mm -hmm. um, nice and high. So they're doing their kind of selective breeding for that to keep it, uh, oh, what am I trying to say? Of them, uh, the genetic variation, trying to expand that. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, the National Zoo in Smithsonian is, is, um, has done a lot of work with them, the P-horses, and a couple other species with their reintroductions. Um, so they were, uh, they were housed outside the small mammal house um, for a while, and I know they're large mammals, but uh, that's just where they were in the zoo. Uh, so I did have a chance to work with them uh, a little bit um, when I was volunteering in the small mammal house, so that was cool. Uh, but they're fascinating species and they're really cool for end up horses and equines mm -hmm. um and they're just kind of funny animals in general so <laughs> so you, you mentioned there that there was a couple of other species that the institute worked with for reintroductions um could can you remember what those species were or like what other bits they did in that vein yeah you're bringing me back to my my membership days at the zoo and i pitch <laughs> all this stuff uh <laughs> so we had the, the gold mine tamarins were one um the uh oh gosh i'm gonna you on the spot <laughs> the guam rail which is a bird um that's no the horse is one of them too the shimtar shimtar horned oryx as well yes um, Very cool. Got another one. Um, 
That's four. The ooh, one of the tree frogs was released mm-hmm. in Central America. And the short one, and the black-footed ferret. Oh black-footed yay! Ferret. Blackfoot ferret. I'm definitely doing an episode on the blackfoot ferret um, at some point in the future. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so I think that was six. So I got there eventually. Yeah. <laughs> so they did, yeah, a lot of great work, essentially. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, so that was, uh, yeah, so the, so the zoo, at least in the United States, I'm not sure exactly how it is in the uh, 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 overseas in Europe and England. Um, but the zoos here tend to be a little more um, outwardly conservation focused, at mm-hmm. least the National Zoo was. Um, where so you can kind of see the the animals in the zoos being ambassadors for their species. Mm-hmm. So they draw they draw in the crowds. The zoos raise the money and then put the money out, um, kind of toward conservation in general out in the wild. Um, and then sanctuaries kind of take that money and support the animals that they are already have and mm-hmm. are continuing to catch in their kind of all encompassing safety net. Mm-hmm. Um, for the animals that are already here and already in the, the struggle of the, the exotic pet trade. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's it's a bit of a, it's definitely a bit of a mix in the UK, um, obviously, because we've had zoos that go back hundreds and hundreds of years when zoos were just there for entertainment and for people to gawp at the animals. Um, so there's still some terrible zoos in the UK, sadly. Um and it's, I feel it's a bit more of a controversial subject for a lot of people in the UK um, in terms of welfare. But I personally love the Durrell Wildlife Conservation Trust, which is Jersey Zoo, which is in the Channel Islands. And they're exactly like that. They have so many conservation projects all over the world. They've brought species back from the brink of extinction. Um, so, yeah, there's institutions like that, which are amazing and do really, really wonderful work. And then there's the other side of it, which is not so great. Um, yeah, but... Thing to or for I guess your viewers is there are good zoos and bad zoos and there are good sanctuaries and bad sanctuaries. Exactly. It's kind of, on, kind of on the people to kind of do their own research mm-hmm. to determine which is which. Um, yeah. What do you? Uh, what's your opinion on Carol Baskin? Oh, <laughs> I would. I would uh, I'm gonna. I'll refrain from any of the, the personal stuff that Tiger King kind of touched <laughs> on, but. Um, Carol Baskin, you know, as despite what kind of the Netflix show made her look like and appear like, um, it is important to remember that uh, at least her, you know, their her, her organization's message at this point in time was probably the most, what's the word, I mean, the most, you know, pure and at least the one that aligned most with um, our message here in Minnesota. Um, at least in terms of what they're doing for, you know, they're doing it for the cats. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not, it's not exploitative, um, like the other, um, like those other facilities shown, um, mm-hmm. are, yeah. um, and so, so everything that they make goes back into their facility and, and taking care of the cats. Um, so that was another thing that was kind of glossed over. Um, and another thing that she does is she raises a lot of money for, um, legislator legislative mm-hmm. stuff um, to try to make laws mm-hmm. um, in order to protect these animals um, so she's a big advocate for that um, so she she despite how the show made her out to look um, she is uh, in at least my personal opinion she is on the good side of things mm-hmm. um, at least with you know the exotic animal trade and all that stuff um, and I, I know the show made her out to look a little uh, <laughs> a little eccentric crazy yeah <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you know it's you know you're gonna find that in the animal world people are people are interesting people so um but, yes. but I, I, interesting. I i personally believe that she's at least at this point in time is on the is on the, the right side of things and I, I i think that the netflix show um kind of went out of its way to um paint her in a in a mm-hmm. little more negative light than that um, and, yeah. it, and it skirted, and again, it skirted over the, the, all the good that she is doing for the, the animals. It's kind Not of like, um, but at large. yeah, I guess it was kind of like a reality TV show, but with big cats around kind of thing. <laughs> um, yeah. So again, like going back to the wildcat sanctuary, obviously you spoke 
there about how you rely on donations um, from the public and everything goes back into the animals. Um, so I will put a link in the show notes to the Facebook page and the website um, so people can go and donate if they would like to. We encourage you to. Um, Check this out. If you want to donate, feel free. If not, we at the very least have some very cool pictures and videos for you guys to watch um, and look at and observe. And they're, you know, enjoy our animals as, as much as mm-hmm. you can because they, you know, we do what we can to make them happy. And uh, who doesn't love a cute cat? Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're purely there for the health and the welfare and the safety of the cats who haven't they wouldn't have that life anywhere else and where else would they go if if you guys didn't exist um so i sort of wanted now also to touch a little bit on um the education work that the wildcats actually does um and i had a little look on the website um and they've got sort of campaigns around things like um no no petting no exotic pets no white tigers no hybrid pets things like that um yeah i wondered if you could sort of like talk through a little bit of the the educational side of things yeah, so, um, yeah, one of our pillars is uh, inspire advocates at every touch point. So that's kind of what we're doing here. Um, Lovely. Kind of forming the public on things. Um, and so I, I can kind of touch on a couple of those that you just went over. Um, the hybrids. Um, so a lot, of, um, a lot of people in the United States in particular, and I would imagine around the world, like you said, there's a Savannah cat mm-hmm. in North London. Um, they take these. Uh, either servals or which is a small African cat or like the Asian leopard cat mm-hmm. um, and they breed them with domestics um, and make these hybrid animals um, that have you know these gorgeous coats and they're you know so again when they're small and they're they're cute and adorable they're easy to sell and they sell them for you know thousands of dollars sometimes um, and then the cats grow up and they still have that wild side in them and they don't stop getting in your house, stop scratching your furniture, um, and then people want to get rid of them. And so a big problem in the U.S. is places like the Humane Society, which does great work with um, domestic cats and dogs, um, they unfortunately just don't have capacity sometimes to care for these hybrids. And on the other side, sanctuaries don't always have, um, again, the capacity to care for these hybrids. They're looking, they're caring for the wild cats, not the domestics. Um, so GWS is not unique, but it's it's special in that we do take in hybrids um, um, when when we are able to. So we've out of our 120 so cats, about 40 or 45 of them are these small uh, either Bengal cat hybrids or Savannah hybrids, um, and so they're the, the little guys, and they're they're just as cute, and they have so much personality and spunk and. Uh, and, and it's really funny because people, interns and staff will come in all excited to work with the leopards and tigers and lions. And then they end up, the time they end up enjoying the most is the time spent with <laughs> the little guys uh, just playing around. Um, so, yeah, that's one of the things we do here at TAVS is we do take in hybrids when we can. Um, and then um, another thing is white tigers. Um, so a lot of people don't know the truth about white tigers, which is something we also try to um, reach and get out there. Um, so white tigers, basically all white tigers today are descendants of a single white tiger. Um, back in the day, his name was back in 1971, I think it was. So he was captured in India by the Maharaja. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, so basically the white tiger gene, it's a double recessive gene. If you remember your Punnett squares from biology. Yeah, I do, I do. Yeah. Um, so it's extremely <laughs> rare. It does happen naturally in the wild, about one in every 40,000. Um, but we have four white tigers at our facility alone. So mm-hmm. that just shows you the human impact on the breeding. Um, so yeah, pretty much every white tiger um, in the world now is um, inbred. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, Finally, things are starting to change in the U.S. Um, the ACA, which is Association for Zoos and Aquariums, um, which is kind of our zoological standard uh, in the U.S., has finally um, doesn't finally does not allow the, the breeding or exhibiting of white tigers. Fantastic. Um, which is actually how we ended uh, ended up with two of our we have two white tiger brothers um, at our facility now um, because the zoo wanted to get accredited and they couldn't do that with white tigers. 
Um, so, so yeah, white tigers, they look cool, but it's important for people to know they're not albino, they're not snow tigers, um, they're simply a result of human intervention in the gene pool. Um, and so they, with all the inbreeding, they end up with a lot of birth defects, a lot of, um, you know, they have, a lot of them have like cleft palates, mm. things like that. Um, they've got kind of really bad vision. They're susceptible to like really bright lights. You see them squinting a lot in the sunlight. Mm. Um, so they have a lot of health issues. And it's really about one in every 40 or 50 cubs reaches adulthood happy and healthy. Wow. Um, so it's a, it's a, unfortunately, it's a kind of, trial and error process that these breeders try to do to get these, you know, these per- pristine, perfect, quote-unquote, white tigers um, so that they can just simply sell them. <laughs> um, so, one, so yeah, it's, it's one of our big touch points is, uh, or one of our big education points is the, the, the truth about white tigers and, and the fact that they're all a, a descendant of basically one single white tiger that was captured in India back in the day and brought to the U.S. Um, and exhibited really all around the country um, before they knew any better. Um, so they just thought it was a, a rare kind of new species, but it just turns out to be a, a genetic variation um, that humans unfortunately figured out how to exploit. Mm. Yeah. I think it's important there to sort of note you said um, before we knew any better. So I think like that really showcases how important education is for people um, who don't understand these issues and who particularly don't understand how prolific the exotic wildlife trade is um, so yeah amazing that you guys are doing so much education um, and thanks for, for saving the cats <laughs> um, so you've had like all these experiences and contact with these incredible species on a day-to-day basis um, do you have like a particular treasured memory, standout experience with either the cats or, or in the wild? Um, well, actually, well, yeah, I do. I have a couple. Uh, so, I mean, we have a lot of cool cats here. Um, mm-hmm. We uh, and 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 you find when you work with animals that you know you have you you have a connection with some animals and some animals they they, they don't like you for whatever reason. Um, whether it's heartbreaking. I know it, it is. It, feel bad sometimes like you get it because you know they these animals have been through a lot and um you know we have a you know if the lion has been abused in the past by uh, by somebody then they see another person that reminds them of that they're going to be scared mm-hmm. and kind of shut down a little bit um but we had so the two white tiger brothers that i was talking about um their name simon and jeremy uh, so Simon is very upfront and forward. He's up the fence. He's greeting you. He's looking for food. Jeremy is definitely the the type B personality. He hangs back, very cautious, likes to observe. Um, and so when I first arrived, Jeremy was terrified of me. He would literally like hiss and run away to the other side of the enclosure. It broke my heart. Mm. Um, he wouldn't he wouldn't really like come in the building to to get food if he knew I was in there. Um, so I would have to wait outside if they wanted to feed him in the building. Um, so it broke my heart a little bit, um, but I was I was um, fortunate enough to they had me um, they had me work with him, um, start feeding him, getting him used to just basically my presence. Um, I'd hang out with him, kind of spend some, you know, I'd feed him and, and do a little bit of training, and then and or at least some operating operate conditioning stuff to you know we do for vet exams and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, just in, in neutral time, so just hanging out, sitting sitting next to the fence with him. Um, and so now, after about a, you know, I've been here about a year and three months, um, he he likes me, and he, he'll come up and say hi and greet me, and he's comfortable with me being there. And it's just a really, um, to me, it's a really special thing that I can kind of share this bond with this huge cat, that, yeah. you know, who was you know a year ago was terrified of me and now he he understands that that i'm not there to hurt him i'm there to i'm there to just say hi and take care of him and and all these you know and it's just a really really cool experience for me yeah definitely that's lovely it's kind of similar to like the animals that we see come through um Mayhew where i work and if like it's the same behavior with the cats and the dogs if they're really shut down it's about gaining that trust and spending the time with them and, and it's always wonderful when you see them sort of 
have that breakthrough um, and realize that it's okay. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a lot. Of, I, I found just personally from my personal experience that, like, if, if, if any of your viewers are encountering animals like this, um, cats or dogs, um, and like, you know, they, everyone, they all love treats and stuff like that. You can gain it like that. But really the time that, um, that the connection is made is that neutral time. Mm-hmm. So you're not, you're not trying to get anything out of them. You're not trying to, you know, give anything to them. They're not concentrating on food. It's just hanging out in the same space. Um, and it's, and it's that time that you, that they start to, to the, you start to gain their trust rather mm-hmm. um, they can just start once they are able to relax and realize that you're not going to do anything to them that's when they start to let you in mm-hmm. yeah I think that's a great phrase to sort of apply to the world over and us in wildlife like we just have to learn to live in the same space we yeah. should just all have neutral space together um, so that sort of leads me on to my final formal question, um, which is what would your hopes for the future be? Like, what would you like to see for the future of the US and the exotic pet trade? Um, well, I mean, our ultimate goal, the pipe dream for really any sanctuary would be that we would no longer be needed. Um, so, I mean, that would, you know, in a perfect world, mm-hmm. you wouldn't need sanctuaries because there wouldn't be an exotic animal trade that needed you know that required cats to be rescued at the end because people couldn't take care of them um so i mean that's like you know end of the end of the road but uh, i mean until then it's just it's about educating the public um i mean honestly before i even got out here there was so much that i didn't know about um you know like i said the speed breeding the cub petting um if any of your viewers ever, you know, if they ever see a, come get your picture taken with these tigers or lions, don't do it. Um, so that's, that's exploiting the animals. Um, and, and we're trying to, that's what we're trying to stop. So we want the animals to be able to live out their life as kind of naturally as they can. And we understand that, you know, some, it's too late for some, but that's why we're here to kind of give them a, a, you know, a second chance on, on living as comfortably as they can rather than living in a, you know, a arid crate that's too small or, mm-hmm. you know, not getting the medical attention or the food that they need because mm-hmm. they are these specialized, you know, wild animals that shouldn't be living in captivity. But unfortunately, there's, you know, if they've been living in captivity for the first 10 years of their life, realistically no safe way that they can be released into the wild because they don't have those um instinct they don't well they have the instinct still but they don't have the the knowledge or the ability to, to be able to live or kind of to reintroduce themselves into the wild yeah so so yeah ultimately we'd like to put ourselves out of business yeah um but until then we just want people to understand that uh you know these are these are dangerous animals and they're not meant to they're not meant to be in their home um so one of our one of our uh one of our little catchphrases is keep the wild in your heart not your home ah. um, so, you know so support support the animals and support uh you know getting them you know the no more wild pets and uh and uh but don't bring them home with you <laughs> i like that keep the wild in your heart not in your home beautiful words yeah. to to round that off on um so I have my two last questions that sometimes prove to be the hardest, well, always prove to be the hardest. Um, and the first one is, uh, if you could have any animal adaptation, what would it be and why? Oh, let's see what I wrote down the other day. <laughs> when I was thinking about this. Very prepared. Um, I mean, uh, flying would be pretty dope. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if I would, you know, just, uh, that'd be pretty cool. Um, or just, I mean, just seeing, like, the cat's ability to jump and leap, like, effortlessly, um, you know, they're, you know, even, like, the, the biggest cats all the way down to the smallest little hybrids, they just, you know, they can jump up, like, three times, four times higher than, taller than they are, and it's just really cool to watch, um, especially, like, the bot, little bobcats will spring up, and when they're in the air, it's like, woo, it just looks like they're elevated <laughs> by themselves, um, so that's really cool. 
Um, so I'd probably pick one of those. Nice. Some sort of movement ability. Mm-hmm. Yeah, flying is a popular one, but the the big cat, the the jumping ability is a, is a new is a new one. So that's cool. <laughs> um, okay, and the final question, the hardest one of all, is who would play you in a movie of your life? I, would get, I, I had to do some research on this one, actually. Um, so if I was feeling, like, really confident about myself and I was, like, I looked in the mirror and I thought I looked good that day, I'd probably say Chris Hemsworth. <laughs> Your viewers can't see it, but I've actually got the... My hair is about as long as it's ever been. It's uh, um, So I've kind of got the Thor hair going. Uh-huh. Uh, so if I'm feeling confident about myself, probably him. Um, good, we like confidence. Why not? Isaacs would be another one. Played Lucius. Oh Mexico. my god, I love Jason Isaacs. <laughs> yeah, he's a good one. But the, I think that was just the long blonde hair again. Yeah, yeah. Um, and he's and fabulous, then, fabulous actor. And then the one that actually looks most probably like me, who's got the what's his name, Thomas Brody Sangster. He was in like the uh, I don't know who that the is. Scorch Trials, the, the Maze Runner movies. He's kind of the and he was also Jojen Reed and and uh, oh in um, Game of Thrones. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Kind of awkward, gangly kind of <laughs> physique that seems right up my alley. That's so. uh, that's two people I've interviewed now who've equated themselves to awkward and gangly. <laughs> <laughs> seems to be a trend. Uh, well, you know, we're looking at ourselves honestly in the mirror. It's, uh... No, I like that. You've got options. <laughs> I like that. I like those answers. <laughs> so that, um, yeah, that rounds off my, my formal questions. Um, I shall, of course, put the Wildlife Sanctuary Facebook and um, website, as I said, in the show notes, so people can go and check that out um, if they want to and donate if they want to. Um, is there any closing words that you'd like to share with the audience? Well, thanks for having me. Um, it was good to see you. Good to catch up. And uh, it was good to, it's, it's, you know, I, I work with these cats and these animals every day, and it's it's a lot of fun to, obviously, to do that. It's a lot of hard work to do that, um, but it's also good to to be able to get our message out mm-hmm. um, on different platforms, which is why um, I was kind of eager to do this, um, just because you know we we're we're kind of kind of in the middle of nowhere in Minnesota, in the United States here, and um, it's cool that now we can kind of have a application outlet that's overseas a little bit so people uh are trying to see what we're all about and uh, we do have a lot of um a lot of uh viewers on our facebook um from around the country and around the world um so we always we're always looking to expand our our network um, absolutely we're always appreciative of, of different platforms that we can uh get our voice heard awesome yeah so yeah you hear that everybody go and like and subscribe and do all of the social media things <laughs> okay thank you so much for for taking the time to to talk to me and to to everyone else today it's been it's been really great of course of course good time thank you thank you Thank you for listening once again to another episode of Turn on the Light. I hope you're going away with a little bit of positivity about big cats, wild cats, um, how they're not all totally screwed, um, how, you know, programs can help them spring back. I hope you've learned a little bit about the Iberian lynx and about the wonderful work of the Wildcat Sanctuary um, and how the cats that they keep there have got a lovely, comfortable life away from exploitation um, and how they're encouraging that education through the masses and i hope maybe you've learned something as well um as we said there you can find the wildcat sanctuary at wildcatsanctuary.org that's their website wildcatsanctuary.org you can also follow their work on facebook Um, you can search wildcat sanctuary um, or it is facebook.com forward slash wildcat sanctuary um yeah so i hope that you go and take a look at their work um perhaps give them a follow maybe even donate um if you would like to as they are entirely reliant on public donations um as always you can find the podcast at turn on the light underscore pod on instagram 
um, on Twitter at Saving Species. And if you wish to contact me for whatever reason in the world, um, you can find me on G- uh, at Gmail at turnonthelightpod at gmail.com. Um, as always, all of these bits and bobs will be in the show notes, as I have a habit of talking really fast, so you might not be able to catch it all. Um, but yeah, all of that will be in the show notes. Um, and I hope you enjoyed this. I hope you learned something. And I will talk to you all again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, guys. Take care of yourselves. Lots of love. Bye bye. And remember that hope can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. Thank you.